Section 15 of Atlantic Narratives, Modern Short Stories, Second Series, published 1918 by the Atlantic Monthly Press. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rosita by Ellen McCubin. Recording by Scott Reynolds. www.scottreynoldsvoice.com there are secrets which are never told, mysteries which are never revealed, and questions which are never answered, even nowadays when the press and the police so vigorously supplement the public and private interest in everybody's affairs. It is another evidence of the superior force of the natural human instincts to the mechanism of civilization, that in country villages or isolated garrisons, unpermeated by press or police, such phenomena are most rare, yet even there they exist. Fort Lawrence is a three-company post, possessing no neighbor except a few scattered ranches within a radius of several hundred miles. Thus thrown upon their own resources for amusement, the garrison's knowledge of one another's business is exhaustive, and events in these dull, peaceful days are picked as bare of detail as any bone acquired by some long-hungry dog. Yet at Lawrence occurred the following events, the interrelation of whose outward facts has never been fully understood. A couple of years ago, Lawrence had been occupied for many months by three companies from the cavalry through the chances of army promotion and recently brought it a commanding officer from another regiment. Major Pryor, a middle-aged man who sheltered shyness behind a rampart of sternness, became immediately unpopular by tightening the reins of government, which his predecessor had held somewhat slackly. But the garrison and its feminine belongings were inclined to forgive him when they perceived that he had fallen seriously in love with Rosita. Now nobody had ever considered Rosita seriously before, not even her father, old Lawless, the post-trader, in regard to whom the suspicion that he was a rascal had been condoned by the certainty that he was the jolliest of companies. Old Lawless maintained complete silence as to his past, and as Rosita's mother formed part of that doubtful darkness when he and his child and his stock in trade installed themselves at Lawrence, he had never been heard to refer to her. That she had belonged to some mixed breed, part Spanish, part Indian, was, however, written on each feature of her daughter's body and mind, if Rosita could be said to have a mind. Every woman, savage or civilized, will love some day to her own sorrow, her father had declared with a cynical laugh. But Rosita's future is tolerably safe. Chocolate bonbons are her ruling passion, and as she has the digestion of an ostrich, many years will elapse before she is likely to suffer for her devotion. She was exceedingly pretty, with a beauty of bright eyes, lithe figure, and a complexion so transparent that the most enthusiastic admirer of fairness would not have wished her less dusky. Since she was fifteen, she had held gay and undisputed sway among the younger officers, for Lawrence was so distant a post that feminine visitors were seldom seen there, and in those days the garrison families possessed only daughters in the nursery. The fame of her pretty looks and ways had become widespread among the frontier forts. Yet it was noticeable that her admirers, while ransacking the realms of nature in eulogy of this gazelle, this kitten, this lark, never called her an angel, or even ascended high enough in the spiritual scale to compare her to a fairy. Though there was nothing known of her which the sternest army matron could take umbrage, she was as ignorant of evil as any of the wild creatures with whose name she had been rebaptized, and Lawless kept a keen, though seemingly careless eye upon her amusements. With this girl, Duncan Pryor did not flirt. Plain, prosaic, and forty, he loved her. 
while Rosita, instinctively discerning the difference between his behavior and that of her other admirers, appeared rather repelled than gratified, an attitude which became more obvious the more her father encouraged this serious suitor, and was presently explained, to the increasing interest of the spectators of the little drama, by the discovery that Rosita had developed another love than that for chocolates, and one which she concealed as slightly. Gerald Brenton, or Jerry as he was familiarly known, had, upon his first coming to Lawrence, devoted to Rosita's society every moment which he could spare from military duties that were not numerous. But in doing so, he only fulfilled the manifest destiny of all his compeers at the post. He was a big, fair young fellow, with jovial Irish blood in his veins, and a smile which was perhaps more eloquent than he knew. Certainly, when he returned from two months' leave, he announced his engagement to the most adorable of women, met and won during his absence, with a frank assurance of congratulation which bespoke a conscience void of reproach. Neither did Rosita reproach him. She preferred him to his brethren in a manner flattering to masculine vanity, and Jerry, having placed the colors of his fiancée in his helmet, did not hesitate to enjoy such amusement as was provided for him in a post that would have been dull without Rosita. She was comrade as charmingly as coquette. She rode hurled races and shot at targets and smoked cigarettes as keenly as Jerry himself, while she could sing a love song to her guitar or dance to her castanets with a grace and a fervor that no music hall star of much regretted civilization could surpass. How soon Jerry guessed what it was that looked at him from under her long lashes, which was absent when she bestowed her fearless glances upon the other officers, is not made quite plain to his conscience yet but he was promptly aware of Major Pryor's determination to prevent him from keeping engagements which brought him into the society of Rosita. No position of authority lends itself so readily to petty tyranny as that of a post commander when the incumbent is thus disposed, and that Pryor was thus disposed toward Lieutenant Breton, not only the victim, but Rosita particularly, and the garrison generally, quickly perceived. The adjutant, indeed, though a submissive person, ventured an occasional remonstrance concerning orders manifestly over-exacting, but won nothing by his presumption. Was picnic or dinner arranged? At the last moment an orderly appeared, presenting the major's compliments and a special detail which required Lieutenant Breton's attention. When the much-talked-of fishing expedition involving several nights camping was about to set forth, Jerry was appointed to the escort of some of the wagons just starting en route to the nearest river town for supplies, while reproofs, irritably delivered and flagrantly undeserved, were a daily occurrence. Rosita's wrath, the jocular condolences of his chums, and the no less evident though wordless sympathy of his superiors added fuel to the smoldering fire of Jerry's resentment. Upon a certain radiant June afternoon, this fire blazed. A full-dress parade had been commanded for the sole purpose, it was growled, of giving scope to the Major's restless energies. Some trifling fault in the demeanor of Jerry's troop brought on him a scathing rebuke in the presence of his men, of his comrades, and of the ladies who had gathered to watch such a small display of military pomp as their position permitted. Temper conquered discipline. Instead of the silent salute which was his duty, Lieutenant Breton began an angry expostulation and was sternly ordered to his quarters under arrest for disrespect to the commanding officer. Lawrence reveled in its sensation across that evening's supper tables. Pryor was right, of course. Jerry had been guilty of grave misbehavior before the whole garrison. Yet love of justice is strong, even in the strictest enforcer of discipline, when the enforcer is Anglo-Saxon. If Jerry should refuse to apologize, or if Pryor should refuse to be thus appeased, 
the two captains resolved that private statements of the case should go to Washington before further complications should arise for the victim of a personal prejudice. Jerry, however, in the solitary confinement of his own sitting room, knew nothing of these plans, and faced a gloomy future through an infuriating present. Dear as his career was to him, he determined to sacrifice it rather than apologize to a man who, whatever his rank, was egregiously wrong. But even if his resignation were accepted under the circumstances of his breach of discipline, and he escaped court-martial, how could he justify to his home people the enmity of his commanding officer? Only a story regarding its cause which he should feel himself a cad in the telling. And would his proud sweetheart accept the allegiance of the hero of such a story as unstained and unshaken? When his wrath had cooled and his solitude remained undisturbed, Jerry began to feel forsaken as well as ill-used. Tired of the perpetual turning which pacing his tiny quarters involved, he dropped disconsolately into a chair and covered his face with his hands. There was a rustle of petticoats, and, with dismayed assurance, he lifted his head. Yes, it was she, the pretty cause of his troubles, gazing at him with eyes that glowed through tears. Rosita, he muttered, in a tone instinctively lowered, even in his surprise, for the sentry posted outside his door was probably within hearing. How did you get in here? By that window, she answered, her white teeth gleaming as she nodded toward an open window that looked upon a rear veranda, a veranda which extended the length of Officer's Row, where the post-trader had rented an unused set of quarters. Suddenly she sank to her knees beside his chair, clasping both hands over one of his. He's a wicked man, she cried passionately. I hate him. Jerry rose hurriedly, lifting her as he did so. Speak lower. You should not have come, he said. Why shouldn't I come? Rosita faltered, tears on her long lashes, her lips quivering like a child's. You are alone and in trouble. Beastly trouble. It is awfully kind of you. By Jove, he exclaimed, his outraged sense of propriety yielding place to yet more wounded sense of his friend's desertion in this time of need. You are the only one of the lot who cares what happens to any fellow after he's down. It isn't any fellow. I care for you, Jerry, she murmured wistfully, but he cannot hurt you, really. Just for tonight? Tonight, he repeated, while discretion fled the field, routed by the rush of a vision of the probable consequences of his wrongs, which swept over his soul. He intends to destroy my whole career, and he will do it, too, for I shall never apologize to him. Sympathy is none the less sweet when it shines in brilliant eyes, and he was not much more than a boy a boy aghast in the presence of his first trouble. He grew eloquent while describing the gloomy future which Pryor's tyranny stretched before him. The long and short of it is that I am ruined through his confounded jealousy. He broke off his peroration abruptly, coloring hotly. You shall not be ruined. It is for my sake he hates you. But I will save you, she panted. Nonsense, he exclaimed, half-touched, half-anxious. You cannot get rid of Pryor and as I cannot remain under his command without apology, I must resign, which will mean ruin for me, he ended with almost a groan of despondency. She caught his hand and pressed it to her breast, to her lips. Wait, trust me, she cried, running to the open window. He shall do you no more harm. Jerry, his pulses thrilling to those trembling kisses, followed her. Rosita, sweetest, truest, he gasped, you must not interfere. This matter concerns only Pryor and me. I forbid you. She turned when she had crossed the low edge and flashed a smile back to him, a smile which both bewildered and repelled him. You shall forbid me anything except to serve you, 
she said, and vanished among the shadows of the veranda. For an instant he meditated pursuit, but gave it up as he remembered the complications which would ensue should he be seen in an apparent attempt to evade his arrest. Rosita was a dear little ignoramus, embarrassingly fond of him, he told himself, grasping at his usual common sense, which was perplexed by vague alarm. Yet surely she could intend nothing more than to make a petty scene as special pleader for his cause with Pryor, a pleader who, unless that officer had utterly lost dignity, would produce no other effect than to embitter the jealousy which was the foundation of this persecution. Fort Lawrence goes to bed early. By eleven o'clock sleep apparently possesses the garrison, with the exception of the widely scattered sentinels who cried the hour. But the clear calls had scarcely died upon the vast surrounding stillness of the prairie night when they were succeeded by the sharp, unmistakable report of a pistol shot. Jerry Brenton, lounging half-awake beside the veranda window of his sitting-room, was roused to full consciousness with a pang of foreboding. The report came from a path which skirted the rampart immediately beneath the veranda, at a point where the bluff beyond descended so abruptly into the Yellowstone River hundreds of feet below that the sentry rarely patrolled it, ingress or egress being impossible to anyone in a sane mood. Jerry sprang down the veranda steps, assuring himself that there might be a dozen comparatively harmless reasons for the shot, and that his terror was merely nightmare. Yet when he beheld the body of a man prostrate, face forward, across the path, he knew him, with a knowledge that anticipated sight. Shrinkingly he bent over him, uttered a half-strangled cry, which was dismayed, not surprised, and picked up a pistol, a tiny silver-mounted toy horribly incongruous beside that ghastly, motionless figure, a dainty, deadly thing that Jerry had given months before to the best markswoman in the Northwest. There was a swift rush of footsteps from various directions. The sentry to whose beat this stretch of rampart belonged, another sentry from his station before the door of Jerry's quarters, and three or four partially clad officers roused out of their slumbers. Jerry stood upright, a slight erect figure whose silhouette was distinct against the blue moonlit sky. He swung his arms above his head and flung the pistol far over the edge of the bluff. The next instant he was surrounded by a crowd. A tumult of exclamation and question arose as Pryor's inanimate body was recognized and carefully examined for some sign of life. In the midst of the tumult he leaned against the rampart neither speaking nor apparently hearing, until Blount, the captain of his troop, laid an admonitory hand on his shoulder. "'You were here first. Don't stare like an idiot. Tell us what you saw. Is he dead? We cannot be sure until the surgeon comes. Did you see anyone?' Jerry shuddered visibly. "'I saw nobody. The major had been queer lately. Poor chap. Perhaps he shot himself,' Blount suggested eagerly. "'Was not that a pistol you threw away?' another officer asked sharply. Jerry lifted his eyes. Those familiar faces were pale and stern. "'You saw—' he faltered. "'Speak, lad,' Blount entreated. "'I cannot talk. I must have time to think. The truth doesn't need thinking. It requires plain telling.' There ensued a silence, through which creaked the hurried approach of the surgeon's boots. Jerry's fair head drooped. He caught uncertainly at Blount's arm. "'I have nothing to say,' he muttered faintly. Blount— who, as senior captain, succeeded to Pryor's command in case of that officer's death or incapacity, turned from his young subordinate. "'Sergeant Jackson,' he said in a voice that was not quite steady, "'take Lieutenant Breton to his quarters. You will be responsible for him until further instructions.' Then he knelt beside Pryor, over whom the surgeon was bending. 
Is there life in him? he asked. There was life in him, life that lingered after they had carried him to his bed and his wound had been dressed. A mere spark of life, which might flicker out at any moment. Although the major being a healthy man, in the prime of his years, it might yet blaze up again into strength. Such was the surgeon's unchanging report during the next two days to the post, where horror of the tragedy in its midst had silenced gossip, and where even conjecture held its breath. There is thus much resemblance between a small garrison and a family, that the befalling of a calamity to one of their number softens all judgments. Quarrels, criticisms, envyings are the corrupted fruit of a too brilliant sunshine. Pryor had been unpopular, but only kindness was spoken of him now that it seemed probable that he lay dying. If there was a manifest desire, especially among the ladies, to foster a suspicion that his evident wretchedness had led him to attempt suicide, the desire merely expressed their hope that Jerry Breton's innocence might be proved, in spite of the young fellow's stunned passiveness and his strange flinging away of the pistol. Proof either of guilt or of innocence depended vitally on Pryor's recovery, as no inquiry had elicited any of the facts which preceded the catastrophe of that night. Shortly after ten o'clock the commanding officer had passed the sentry for a solitary stroll along the rampart, which was a daily habit with him. Nobody else had been seen, and nothing unusual had been heard until the pistol shot. Depression, black as the shadow of death which hung over them, possessed the little post which was wont to be so cheery. No one was surprised to hear that Rosita had been added to the number of the surgeon's patients, nor did anyone doubt the cause of the nervous collapse from which he declared her to be suffering, and which forced him to veto Mrs. Blount's offer of a visit to her. Lawless, he said, had miraculously developed into the most perfect of nurses, and Rosita, with the tendency to delirium that belongs to volatile and undisciplined temperaments, was better off under his undisturbed attendance. Closely confined to his quarters, Jerry Breton knew nothing of her illness, and each hour of her silence, after he believed that she must be aware of his position, buried deeper his hope that she would confess when she discovered that he had assumed the suspicion of her mad crime. With bitterness he reflected that the devotion of so fantastic a creature was no more to be trusted than her moral principles, and bound though he felt himself to shelter her, he yearned for the happiness and honor she alone could restore to him. Whether Pryor lived or died, his own career must end in a darkness whose varying degrees seemed to Jerry scarcely worth remark. This story of treacherous vengeance would be told to his own people and to the woman he loved. Oh, God, how his soul adored her purity, her pride, the girlish exaltation for which he had used to profess a tender ridicule. Had he been cruelly unjust to her and to those others who were dear to him? Yet would he have not been unutterably base had he crawled to safety across the condemnation of Rosita, whose crime had resulted from misguided love for him? Like most of his compeers, Jerry had a character which was one of action rather than of thought. In the sleepless thought of those forty-eight hours, his boyishness slipped from him forever, and he attained the full stature of his manhood. God help us, as most of humanity does so attain in the forcing house of suffering. Twilight had come the second time, when Captain Blount knocked on the door of Jerry's quarters. "'I think the lieutenant is asleep, and it's the first rest he has had, sir,' Jackson hesitated. "'I've news for him that he will like better than sleeping. His arrest is over!' Blount cried, entering. Jerry lay back, unawakened, in the only armchair the unluxurious room possessed. Blount stared down at the haggard young face. 
with a blending of affection and resentment which made a very complete perplexity not until he touched the sleeper's shoulder did the heavy lids lift slowly i have nothing to say jerry murmured half-consciously i am sure of it you donkey prior however has said something and the whole crowd of us must beg your pardon though you have yourself to blame that we suspected you prior has spoken what does he say the surgeon will not let him talk but he insisted on hearing who was accused and he acquitted you at once now i want you to tell me what confounded quixotism kept you silent at such cost if as seems probable from his despondency he attempted his own life jerry frowned and looked away into the gathering shadows despondent is he poor chap he asked presently even less thankful to be alive than you seem to be free again jerry sat upright his pale face flushing his eyes shining i not thankful he cried in a voice shaken to the verge of an utter breakdown i have been in hell these two days and you have brought me out but but go away blount or i shall make a fool of myself lieutenant brenton was breakfasting late the next morning when prior's orderly appeared with an immediate summons to the commanding officer's presence war armed capapi sprang into existence in jerry's heart at this summons he had proved prior capable of tyranny without reason and could not hope when the spirit of such a man had been as cruelly wounded as his body that he would incline to mercy but in the blessedness of his own safety he forgave rosita her silence and while aware of the perplexities that would beset him he vowed that no admission of her guilt should be extorted from him there was however neither wrath nor challenge in the hollow eyes which confronted him when he stood beside prior's bed and a gaunt hand feebly moved across the counterpane toward him you are a fine fellow brenton the major murmured i beg your pardon jerry dumbly clasped the quivering fingers they have told me that you flung a pistol over the bluffs prior continued slowly of course i know whose pistol it was but i wish you to understand that the shooting was my fault like the whole affair i provoked her with words i had no right to speak i denied her the mere justice she demanded except for your courage i should have brought disgrace upon her as i have brought death death rosita she died last night jerry dropped into a chair death rosita a creature so instinct with the life of this world that it was impossible to conceive her in the life of which death is the portal did she he shuddered no she never rallied from the shock of that night her father has been here to ask me to forgive the dead my god i shall not forgive myself prior cried with an anguish none the less intense for the faintness of the voice which uttered it jerry had covered his face and the others stared enviously at the tears that slipped through his fingers time's up the surgeon exclaimed from outside the closed door the eyes of the two men met wistfully i have deserved no favor from you prior muttered neither is it for my sake that i entreat you to continue silent there will be no further inquiry into the matter as the surgeon tells me that i shall recover so the garrison must be satisfied only with conjecture as to my temporary madness and your magnanimity it is you who are magnanimous i loved her i persecuted her the death she desired for me was mercy compared to the life which is all the atonement i can make to her memory with which exceeding bitter-sweet whisper prior turned himself to the wall 
Out on the parade, the radiant freshness of the prairie morning thrilled Jerry's young veins with an ecstasy of living, and a sharp pang of compassion stabbed his heart. Misguided, bewitching, ah yes, and loving, Rosita lay dead in the midst of the summer gladness that seemed akin to her. He pulled his cap over his eyes, and, ignoring some cordial greetings, walked hurriedly to the post-trader's quarters. Presently Lawless came to him in the little drawing-room, which was unfamiliarly dark and still. "'God bless you,' he said, laying a hand on Jerry's shoulders. "'Those words do not mean much to me. I've wished they did since last night, but you will understand from them that I am grateful. Hush, I have nothing to forgive you, nor had she. Will you come to see her? She never knew that you were shielding her, or she would have confessed, and she wished you to see her, if she looked pretty.' pretty indeed. Poor flower of a people, Christianized just enough to suffer for the savage instincts they do not learn to control. She lay with a crucifix between the hands which seemed so childish and were so guilty. Remember her like this, Lawless continued. Remember too that she loved you. Not as the women of our race love, when nature is subdued by civilization and ruled by religion, but with the limitless love of a squaw for her chief, knowing neither right nor wrong in her devotion to him, for under her daintiness and her sweetness Rosita was a squaw. Across her grave three men kept silence. There is another regiment at Lawrence now, and when the cavalry remember what they beheld of this story, they glance at their quiet major with wonder for his fleeting madness. Only the surgeon and one or two ladies murmur to their own thoughts. Rosita? End of story Bibliographic and Interpretive Notes by Charles Swain Thomas Ellen McCubin was, several years ago, a frequent contributor to the Atlantic. Nearly all her stories are tinged with the military spirit with which she was thoroughly familiar. The cause of the deed is never revealed to the garrison. Its consequences can only be surmised. Indeed, the true standing of the affair as tragedy is only guessed. The instigator of the quarrel between Major Pryor and Jerry Breton, the perpetrator and the victim of the tragedy, unite in the person of one Christianized just enough to suffer for the savage instinct she had never learned to control. We see her just once, Rosita, the beautiful, the impulsive, the passionate, the next time she is dead. It is the feeling of repressed power that makes Ellen McCubin's story grip the attention. In a few short pages, three, possibly four, characters are made to live, and a tragedy wrecks two lives. Suggested points for study and comment. 1. Discuss which of the common elements of story, setting, plot, character, theme, or style, is here most prominent. 2. Discuss the way in which the separate characters are introduced and the complication arranged. 3. How can Jerry's treatment of the commanding officer on the day of the dress parade be condoned? 4. How does the reader feel regarding Rosita's vague declaration that she will rid Jerry of Pryor's unfairness? 5. On the night of the shooting, what motive prompted Jerry to fling the pistol far over the edge of the bluff? 6. Describe the effects which the tragedy produced upon the garrison. 7. What were Jerry's feelings during the days immediately succeeding the tragedy? 8. How does the reader decide the question as to who is the really guilty person? End of Rosita